listening to Pet Candy. Hey, pet parents. Welcome to Bees and Queens. I'm your host, Caitlin Palmer. On my show, we talk to fellow pet lovers and discuss the wonderful and quirky world of pet care. This program is brought to you by PRN Pharmacow, makers of Reconcile, an FDA-approved medication for the treatment of separation anxiety in dogs in conjunction with behavior modification training. Learn more at Reconcile.com. Dr. Vanessa Spano is a resident with the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. She's seen 600-plus primary behavioral cases, so she knows a thing or two. She's currently conducting research on low-stress handling and sheltered felines through a fear-free grant. Dr. Spano also provides behavioral consultation for a variety of shelters in the tri-state area, including the ASPCA. In her spare time, whatever the heck that is, she enjoys spending time with her two adopted kitties, Little Prince and Dancer, and her friends and family, of course. And, and I am recording. Okay, Dr. Spano, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be doing this and speak with you. This is so exciting. So tell me about vet school. So for veterinary school, I went straight after I graduated from college because I kind of just wanted to do everything one after the other and then start my career ASAP. Um, Veterinary school is, of course, a four-year program. And the first two and a half, three years are very much focused on uh, sitting in a classroom, which is very important. A lot of people acknowledge it's probably a lot to learn because you're learning about a lot of different species. I would say, in my opinion, they focus on like the big four, or at least in my experience, which was cats, dogs, cows, and horses. But it's not just about, you know, different species. It's not like I had one cow class and one horse class. It was all different things like so pharmacology and the medications, um, internal medicine, surgery, things like that. And then, of course, the last year is when you go into what they call clinics, and that's where work in the hospital that's paired with your veterinary school so you could get real hands-on experience. And so I went to veterinary school in Prince Edward Island, Canada, which was a very, very lovely province, um, very different than where I'm from and where I'm currently located, which is New York City. So part of veterinary school for me was also just adjusting to a different type of lifestyle. It was a good place to learn because it was quiet there. And then... As opposed to New York City, right? (laughs) And there's not going to be a veterinary school in New York City, although I wish there was because there's no space for the farm animals that they like teaching animals. And I really liked working with farm animals. I hope to do it again. You know, now I'm mostly with cats and dogs, but I did like about veterinary school that you could expose yourself to just a bunch of different types of species. Oh, for sure. So what made you choose behavior as opposed to some of the other specialties you could have gone into or or general practice even? Yeah, so I feel like a lot of veterinarians that I speak to can say like from a very young age, they knew they wanted to be a veterinarian. And I feel from a very young age, all I knew is that I really loved animals. Of course, I knew that veterinary medicine existed. And I also enjoyed learning about science. That was just my favorite subject growing up in elementary school and high school. But I mostly knew that I wanted to work with animals and not just working with animals, but really improving their welfare. I'm very huge, like most veterinarians, into animal welfare. And I assumed, okay, I really like science. I really like animals. Veterinary medicine makes sense. 
So when I was in high school, I thought to myself, okay, my goal is going to be to apply to veterinary school. And then once I was in college, somehow I became aware of a really relatively new specialty called veterinary behavior. That is essentially what I call the specialty of psychiatry for animals. I just felt that through working on animals' mental well-being and their mental health, especially because that's really not talked about that much. You know, a lot of times, unfortunately, even with people talking about mental health can be very taboo. So if it's like that with people, it's really not going to be talked about with animals. So long story short, I felt that the best way that I could go about improving the welfare of animals was not necessarily through veterinary medicine, but through veterinary behavior. That's so true. And you know, when you think about it, that is how they communicate. You know, they, they don't have words like we do. That's body language. Yes, body language is huge. And I actually one day would love a goal of mine. Of course, in junior high and high school, we take language courses. You know, I took Spanish in elementary school and then like French in high school and college. But I really wish one of the options schools would offer is body language for animals, because that is exactly the way that they communicate. And it's all about respect and consent. And, you know, I even talk to my private clients nowadays about animal body language, and it's not something that's very intuitive. Like there's a lot of really subtle signs that cats and dogs might exhibit that show that they're stressed, but we just don't recognize them because we didn't know about them. And so i I think it's so important to include that in schools for little kids. So, yeah. Very true. And especially for children with, say, a big dog, knowing the signs that it's going to bite. Because they have all these videos now where they say, oh, it was totally unprovoked. The dog just lost its mind and bit this kid. But then when you watch the videos, you see all those subtle things. So that could help a lot of not only animals, but people, too. Yes. And it is very uncomfortable when I come across on my social media news feed, people posting videos of their toddlers and babies with animals unsupervised. And it looks really cute. But I don't mean to do this, but I feel like I pop everyone's bubble because everyone's like, look at this cute thing that this animal is doing. And I'm like, no, that animal is stressed. And that's scary. Don't do So yeah, it's It's important. And, you know, I know something very prevalent right now is the pandemic. And unfortunately, but not to my surprise, the amount of kids that presented to hospitals for dog bites increased like three or fourfold. That makes sense, though, because everybody got pets. Everybody got pets and there was school closures initially. So kids were home and are on top of their pets. Yeah. Whenever I'm home, I'm on top of my pets too. I'm like, everybody line up. We're snuggling. (laughs) (laughs) The two rules in my house are that the cats need to keep their tails up and be happy and that they need to participate. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm not as respectful as you. I'm like, I feed you. I love you. Come here. I just want to press my face in your belly. Don't, do not scratch me. <laughs> no, no, I know. I mean, it's, it's all about the individual pet. You know, some people love that. So. Absolutely. No, my cats, I can't say they like it, but they're just kind of like, they're just resigned. I think they're just kind of like, you know, I guess this lady has fed us consistently for like the last 12 years. So, I, I mean, I guess if she wants to like, smush her face in my soft belly, whatever. It's weird, but whatever. I always tell my clients, and this is a very big generalization, but pets can have an opinion in one of three ways over someone or something. They either love it, dislike 
it or merely tolerate. Exactly. <laughs> and we always want to be cautious with the merely tolerating, which is very stereotypical for cats. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, for the record, like if they're they're not genuinely distressed, I mean, I don't like seriously stress them out, but I am guilty of like, okay, you're cute. I'm loving you. Deal with it. <laughs> so, so yeah, back to the pandemic. So everybody got pets. And then all of a sudden we're spending all this time, not me because I work at a vet clinic, but, you know, other people are spending all of this time at home with their pets and the vets got overwhelmed and people are noticing little things and it's been something, hasn't it? Yeah, I was reading statistics. It was like put out by the ASPCA that based on the survey, they put out one in five households in America, which is equivalent to 23 million households adopted cats and dogs over the pandemic. And that was a 250% increase than pre-pandemic. Yeah, you're 100% accurate. You know, I, I remember even being on social media at the start of the pandemic and seeing like the whole Clear the Shelters movement, which in theory is wonderful. Of course, we want these pets to be in a home and not in a shelter. But yeah, and, and unfortunately, a lot of behavioral issues can arise for a variety of reasons. Yes, again, we want these pets to be adopted, but it is hugely important to make sure that they go into the appropriate home, which can always be really hard pandemic or not to figure out, you know, this dog that's been in the shelter for 10 days, we don't really know his behavior. How do we know what home is going to be a good fit? But then, yeah, like you said, a lot of people working from home, they're with their pets a lot more. So that changes the physical environment for the pet, which can be a bit stressful in terms of change. Um, and then also just owners noticing things a lot more because now they're spending more time with their pets. Right, for sure. Are you seeing more separation anxiety now with people going, and separation anxiety I know is kind of a general term, but with people going back to work and now their pets, we've we've been home with them 24 seven and now we're going back to work. So we're gone eight, 12 hours a day. And you know, are, are you seeing an increase in that? Yes, um, I'm seeing a huge increase in separation anxiety, but I would also kind of just say generally, there's a lot more pets that are presenting to the behavior clinic. Like we were always busy and pre-pandemic, I would say, I mean, there's not very many veterinary behaviorists in the United States because it's a newer field and hopefully there will be more, but maybe pre-pandemic there was like a month's wait list and now there's like three, four, five months wait list. And that's even with additional hours and additional staff. And so part of that sure is separation anxiety has increased, but there's a lot of other behavioral issues that have increased in my experience. How do these pets present with these behaviors? Like what will they do? So for separation anxiety specifically, there's usually two main types of separation anxiety that I'll see. And so one is what I call isolation distress. And so that is essentially the pet just doesn't want to be alone. It's not that they're hyper attached to one specific owner. It's just that they don't want to be left alone. And so you could, although this is not always financially the easiest, you could mitigate that issue by sending them to doggy daycare, getting a pet sitter in the home. Um, but then the second type of separation separation anxiety that I see is what I call like true pathologic separation anxiety. And the root of that is really a hyper attachment issue. And so different than isolation distress, you could bring a pet sitter in to that dog, but it's really not going to do anything. The dog is still going to be very upset that their owner is not there. 
the most common signs of house separation anxiety, whether it's isolation, distress, or um, hyperattachment issues that I see would be vocalization and um, is one of them, of course, you know, barking, whining, howling, which is sad. And, you know, living in the city, it's a very obvious high pressure situation, not to say elsewhere it's not. Yeah, you can't be keeping the neighbors up. You know, they got to work night shift or whatever. So, Well, and that's one of the big things that I've noticed over the course of the pandemic is I'm getting a lot more reports from clients that they're getting complaints from landlords or eviction notices even. Um, because it could be one day the dog was home alone and then the next day the owner all of a sudden got word that they have to go back for work. And so, it, you know, it's not like they necessarily had a ton of time to work on it. So yeah, vocalization is a big one. Other things that we could see would be destruction in the home. And so that could manifest a variety of ways. It could be, you know, they're getting into the garbage or they rip the curtains and the blinds down. Another one would be elimination problems. So just urination and defecation, even if the pet was potty trained. And then also escape type behaviors. So like if the pet was left in a crate, you know, they're biting at the bars. Um, and unfortunately, you'll see like secondary, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've seen this in the clinic, like dental issues, because they're wearing down their teeth from biting at the bars. If they're not in a crate, it could be, you know, just scratch marks at the door. I've had, crazily enough, not just one, but multiple dogs that have been able to figure out how to exit their owner's apartment, like exit the front door. I have one owner that had to get like a bunch of padlocking because the dog figured out how to escape. We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Separation anxiety is a condition when dogs panic when they are left alone. According to a 2016 study in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, research has shown that this condition affects up to 17% of dogs. It's important to remember that a dog with separation anxiety is not being a bad dog. He's just suffering from a readily treatable medical condition. Reconcile, fluoxetine hydrochloride is an FDA-approved medication for the treatment of separation anxiety in dogs in conjunction with behavior modification training. Reconcile is a flavored chewable tablet that is given once a day and needs to be prescribed by your veterinarian. Reconcile helps dogs with separation anxiety achieve a calmer frame of mind, which makes them more receptive to training. Here's some important safety information about Reconcile chewable tablets. The most common adverse events reported with Reconcile in decreasing order of reported frequency are decreased appetite, depression, lethargy, shaking, shivering, tremor, vomiting, restlessness, and anxiety, seizures, aggression, diarrhea, dilated pupils, vocalization, weight loss, panting, confusion, incoordination, and excessive salivation. Reconcile chewable tablets are contraindicated for dogs with a history of seizures or when used with drugs that may cause seizures. Consult your veterinarian for complete safety information or see the product insert on Reconcile.com. We've had dogs board with us before that have known how to scale a fence or even how to open doors, and that's been stressful. It's like, why do you know how to open a door? You're not supposed to know that. They're too smart. Too smart. And I think that's another thing, too, because, you know, for example, Australian Shepherds. They're beautiful. I think they are just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous dogs. But I don't have the energy <laughs> to, 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 to really be a good mom to an Australian Shepherd. 
So I think a lot of people see a cute puppy and don't plan for the adult that it's going to become. It is actually a huge coincidence to me that you specifically mentioned that breed because like, are you in a more residential area? Um, well, yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. Long story short, Australian Shepherds, Border Collies are probably at least 50% of my patient population. They do not belong in the city. And they, like you said, are very cute puppies. So there's this huge boom into adopting them and obtaining them from breeders, but they were bred and meant to roam around and herd sheep on a farm. So when you put them in an apartment in New York City, they're so frustrated. Yes. Huskies too. I know Huskies are wildly popular right now. In our animal shelter, we've seen this huge influx in Huskies because they're they're gorgeous. You know, you see them and even I knowing, even logically knowing, I am not the kind of person who is going to go running and go, I'm, I'm a couch potato. You know, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a big fat me and like, I need big fat cats and dogs just to take naps with me. This is why we like cats. Yes. But, um, y- you know, they, they get them because they're gorgeous and they are. And you see that puppy and you, even I'm like, oh, I could, I could change my life for that dog. That's a gorgeous dog. But it's like the reality of that is, no, I'm not. Well, and the tough thing, and I'm, I'm saying this gently, I'm not saying it as a negative thing, is Huskies, Australian Shepherds, Border Collies, German Shepherds, they were bred to be neurotic. Their brain is wired to be neurotic. Um, and that can be really challenging for a person to own. They need a job. They need that stimulation. They need a job. That's exactly it. Yeah. And that's kind of like as a person, if you're not able to do what you love internally, you're going to get frustrated and secondary mental health disorders develop. Exactly. And then they act out. And a lot of times, you know, clients will say like, this is the stupidest dog I've ever had. And it's like, they're not stupid. They're bored and they're acting out. And I would actually say that they're very, very smart. I mean, I, you know, we love animals. So I say every single animal is smart. Every single animal has a huge spectrum of emotion. But like those types of breeds that we just mentioned, the reason why I I feel I see them so much in the behavior clinic is because they are way too smart for their own good. And they are so perceptive of their environment. They're so hypersensitive to it that they're going to react to every little thing. So what are some ways that you would treat patients, like you'd work them up and then do a treatment plan and then kind of go from there? You know, they'll come into the clinic. A lot of it is history taking between me and the owner, you know, verbal conversation where I kind of probe with certain questions about like the lifestyle, what are the clinical signs that the dog is presenting? What have you tried to treat with in the past, if at all? I always recommend video footage um, because a dog's or cat's, especially a cat's behavior in the clinic can be very different um, than their behavior at home. So video footage, if the owner is able to obtain it, is, is hugely helpful. And so once I get a better idea of what's going on, I basically come up with an assessment or diagnosis and very similar to human psychiatrists, in my opinion, I don't like to harp on the diagnoses because I don't want to label a patient. It's really just more about the treatment plan. And so to specifically answer your question, when we discuss a treatment plan, I usually say it's like three M's. So number one is management, environmental management, which is number one to me. It's huge. And if you're not going to engage in training or supplements or medications, if they're indicated, the number one thing I highly recommend is environmental management. The second thing would be behavior modification, which is training. And that is teaching the pet coping mechanisms that they just don't know. And then the third thing 
if indicated, would be treating them with supplements or medications. Um, and it's usually a combination of all three that like holistically work together as part of the treatment plan. What kind of coping mechanisms can you can you teach an animal? There's a ton and it, I guess, kind of depends on the presenting complaint. But, you know, going back to separation anxiety, which is a huge issue with the pandemic, a coping mechanism, and this is going to sound simple, is relaxation. I always equate things where I'm basically like the psychiatrist that could very much prudently and cautiously prescribe medications to patients when they're indicated. But then there is the trainers who are like the psychoanalysts or talk therapists who teach the patient's coping mechanisms. And so if you have a human patient that is in a psychologist's office and they're telling you to relax, that is like so much easier said than done. Right, right. Breathe with me. (laughs) We need to teach them how to do it. And so there are a lot of relaxation techniques that we can teach dogs and cats. And it kind of depends on the protocol that you use, but it's all about teaching the pet to take deep breaths and increasing the duration with which they're able to stay in one place and relax. Because the one thing I always say is you're never really going to be able to get a pet to want to do anything unless they're absolutely relaxed. How do you teach them to relax? Like what In general, I know it's kind of hard to say specifically. Yeah, no. So I mean, again, there's so many different protocols, but in general, we usually recommend starting off with something simple called mat training. Um, And so that would be basically, you know, you cue your pet to go on a mat and you could do this with your lovely kitty too. With you? (laughs) Oh, who is that? This is Orville. He's our clinic cat. He was, he was outside of the closet. Because I'm in a closet. And um, he decided he didn't want to hang out with me. But I looked down and there was a little paw beseeching. So I was like, of course you can come in. Come in. Oh, I love that. So yeah, we usually cue them to go on a mat. And we'll do that by like sprinkling treats or something that's really high value. And once the pet has made positive associations that going on this mat means I get treats, They'll start to go there more frequently. And then we practice something like a down stay. And so that is basically like just a regular obedience cue where you cue them down and you cue them to stay. And when you're first teaching them a down stay or really any type of obedience cue, in order for them to learn appropriately, you need to be able to reward them immediately within one to two seconds which is hard, you know, you have to be super quick with your mechanics. But once they get the hang of it, then you can start to extend the duration with which you're going to give them the reward. So you cue them to do a down stay and then you give it after five seconds and then 10 seconds and then 20 seconds and you move on from there. And then once they're able to do a down stay on the mat, then you start to add different stimulations within the environment, making sure that they could stay in that down stay. So you could introduce knocking at the door. You could introduce going to the doors if you're about to leave, picking up your keys, making some sort of a sound. The biggest thing is you want to make sure that you're not pressuring the pet or pushing them too far because a lot of times dogs will and cats will listen to you and do a down stay and kind of just wait as you're adding all the simulation into the environment. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're relaxed. Just because they're doing it doesn't mean that they're relaxed. And so you need to look at something you mentioned before, which is their body language. And so you're only going to move on to the next step if repetitively your pet was able to get through that step and you go into the door with a very relaxed body 
no ears back, no yawning, no licking of the lips, no panting. If they're doing any of those subtle signs of tense body language, you've gone too far and you need to take a few steps back. That makes a lot of sense. That's really fascinating because I was picturing, like you said, you know, when talk therapy, you know, they're like, okay, let's let's do these breathing exercises. Well, you can't exactly do that with a pet, you know. I mean, you can, but they're not going to do it. So, Actually, you could teach them deep breathing. You have to be able to capture the moment. When they're like sniffing, like when their nostrils are flared, that means that they cannot pant. And so if you're able to capture the moment when they are flaring their nostrils, you can hold that and that forces them to take a deep breath. So that is something that you could incorporate into the relaxation technique. You don't have to, but you could. So like if they're they're breathing, their nostrils flare, you like kind of hold their mouth shut. Is that what you do? You don't hold their mouth shut. You just like hold the treat in front of them so that they can actually sniff the treat. And then once you see the nostrils flare, that's when you reward them with the treat. I like that. That's fun. How do you handle aggression? Do you have a lot of aggressive patients? I do. And, you know, I only work in New York City, so I can't really say this for sure because I don't have like a frame of reference. But I do feel like in New York City, we see a lot more aggressive cases than in not as congested areas, because like we had mentioned before, unfortunately, you know, this is just too tight of a space for some pets to live. But yeah, we definitely see a lot of aggression. And a lot of times, you know, when you had mentioned, like, are you seeing a lot of separation anxiety cases throughout the pandemic? Yes, but that's usually not just the only issue. I rarely see a dog that's just presenting for separation anxiety. There's usually separation anxiety and fear-based aggression and territorial behavior. Oh, sure. Or all of the above. Yeah. Exactly. And so with aggression, I guess in general, there's a few different types of motivations behind aggression. Um, A lot of it is fear-based, but you could have, like we just mentioned, territorial behaviors, protective behaviors where they feel like they need to guard the owners. And the way that we would treat that is, you know, again, management, behavior modification, and then if indicated supplements or medications, but a huge part of it is environmental management. So like one very common presentation that I'll see is you're walking your dog on the street and someone comes up to the dog and just pets your dog because your dog is very cute. And then the dog growls, lunges and snaps. That dog is doing that because they're not comfortable. So the number one thing that you can try to do instead of saying, I need my dog to stop fighting, which is never going to happen is manage the environment by saying, no, you cannot pet my dog. And if they're not put in that situation, then there's no way that they could exhibit those aggressive behaviors. Uh, Aggression when visitors come into the home, which could be fear-based or territorial, just put your dog in another room. The dog doesn't want to be there. I know at our house, when somebody comes to the door, they knock and it's a chorus of barking, you know, and that, but once you come inside, they kind of sniff you and then they're like, okay, cool. And then they just go do their thing. So, and that's healthy. That's fine. The fact that they're going over to sniff them, they're just gaining information about that individual and then they disengage. That sounds perfect with what your dogs are doing. Unfortunately, some other dogs, they're just going to be too afraid to, to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them just bark and bark and bark and bark and bark. Yeah, until the trigger goes away. Um, and so that's where we recommend putting them in a separate room. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times clients will say, well, if we put the dog in a separate room, they're just going to get hysterical behind the closed door. 
because no one's with them. That's where we want to practice that relaxation technique so they could stay in a separate room safely and at the same time relax. Sure. And animals, especially dogs, they're very empathetic with their humans. So like if we're stressed, they're stressed, especially at the vet clinic. (laughs) Yes. And it's interesting because you know, of course, there were a few studies that came out during the pandemic looking at like behavior problems that may have arisen because of change in lifestyle with lockdown. And there is one study that, you know, found a correlation where dogs that had more negative changes in behavior seemed to correlate with owners who were just psychologically more tense and stressed for their own reasons during the pandemic. So yeah, maybe they could play off of our emotions. Right. And some pets, especially at the vet clinic, they do better away from their people. Yes. Personal anecdote, if that's okay. I actually just had to bring my own kitty to the vet uh, for an orthopedic exam and I wasn't there for the exam. I just came in afterwards to speak with the orthopedist. And as soon as I walked into the exam room, my cat started howling and wanted to escape. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Did he do this the whole time? And they were like, he literally only started doing this. And once you walked in the room, he was an angel the entire time when you were not there. I know my my palm panzer, he does this. He makes me feel so bad because like if I go to give him to a technician or to the doctor, because I'm like, it's like that too. I can't stay for the exam or whatever's being done because he he panics and he stresses and he wants me. And it's like, I want to help you, baby. But like I'm being, a, no, you have to get, I'm sorry, you have to have a heartworm test. But he, if he sees me, he starts panicking. But if I'm not there, he's kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. It's like kids. It's like, mom. It really is like pediatrics. Absolutely. Like when you have to give the baby or the kid like an injection. Yeah, maybe the baby cries a little bit more when mom's there. Yes, because especially, and I know I'm guilty of it. I coddle the absolute crap out of that dog. That is my baby. I love him. He does no wrong, except that he's a total asshole whenever, (laughs) you know, most of the time. But like, he's my baby, so... It's like, I'll, I'll be like, oh, baby, you're okay. I love you. Oh, your little foot, are you okay? And it's like, you're fine. Yes, I do the same exact thing with my pets. Like, even as a veterinarian, if I notice that there's something medically off with my pets, even if it's really benign and really subtle, I freak out. <laughs> I just can't handle it. Clinical knowledge goes out the door when it's your own pet. Yeah, I can't treat my own pets because there's way too much bias and emotion there. Yes, it's so true. And that's validating too for pet parents, I think, because when we talk about the proper way to do stuff, it's like, well, but I mean, I'm guilty. I do it too. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of like separation anxiety with the pandemic, I think potentially part of the problem, and this is not blaming anyone, but, you know, pets were found to provide a lot of psychological support for their humans over the pandemic who may have been lonely and stressed. Um, And so, of course, with lockdown and safety issues, people are just not leaving the house as much, but they may have also felt some sort of guilt after spending so much time with their pets that they also didn't want to leave their pets alone. And so that didn't help the issue with separation anxiety, unfortunately. They joke about, um, like in psychology, like it's always the mom's fault. You know, a nervous, a nervous parent is going to have a nervous child. <laughs> it's like, whoops, well, I did that to all of my animals. So sorry, guys. 
Well, I do that again. I do the same thing with my, um, you know, my cat, I had to bring him to the orthopedist because he is a psycho and jumps and runs off of everything. And I realized, you know, I, I think he hurt his leg when I moved his bed onto a higher surface. And I was like, great, that's completely my fault. <laughs> We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Hi, this is Shay, and I want to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy, Cooking with Shay. I make vegan eating easy and fun. Check it out on Pet Candy TV. One of my cats at home, She's this is my baby. She's my first ever bottle baby. Love, this is my little girl, like, Panzer's my favorite dog. Flower's my favorite cat. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but you know. At home, she's always on me. She's always purring. She's precious. She's wonderful. When she comes to the vet, she is an absolute hellcat. Like, tear you up, will scream, will swat at you, like has to be sedated. You would never know that is such a sweet cat at home. (laughs) Well, that is something that I also see a lot in the behavior clinic is veterinarians, like general practice vets will refer over their patients because the dog or cat is just petrified and aggressive at the vet. And so we need to get a better handle on like sedation or what we call like pre-veterinary pharmaceuticals to give it home before bringing your cat so I know with with my girl, she has to she has to have a little bit of chemical or you know a little bit of chemical restraint, a little something something before she comes to the a vitamin G, if you know what I mean. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. But um, at what point do you recommend chemical sedation or some kind of like happy pills or Prozac or whatever? With regards to medical handling or just in general? Um, just in general with with pets and. Uh, you know, at what point is it, oh, okay, you need some, some medicine? When they're struggling. I mean, when it comes to medical handling, and I don't want to sound like a pill pusher, cats and dogs, it's not like they go to the vet, hopefully, a lot. That's a very interesting thing. And so they don't, and when they go, it's a very negative experience. They're given injections. They usually go and they're not feeling well. And we're poking and prodding when they're in pain. So they're just automatically going to have negative associations at the vet. And so they're going to be stressed when they go to the vet. And so to be honest with you, I readily recommend giving some sort of oral sedation as long as the pet is healthy and can handle it well in order to go to a veterinary visit. Like my cats, I'm not trying to brag, but they generally do very well at the vet. But even so, I can tell that they get a little stressed. It's not like they're going to scratch or bite the vet, but I just don't want it to get to that point. And so I will give them a little bit of vitamin G anyway. Yeah, when it comes to just um, general behavior problems, I frequently recommend working on behavior modification and training first because that is what, in my opinion, is going to teach the pet coping mechanisms to learn, you know, it's not that scary in this situation. Here's happy alternative behaviors to do instead. But if you're engaging with the training for a little bit and you feel like it's really moving slowly or your pet is just exhibiting constant body language that they're stressed, then I absolutely recommend um, some degree of pharmaceuticals. You know, there is um, Reconcile, which is a doggy branded version of fluoxetine that's branded for separation anxiety that we will use a lot um, if indicated in the clinic. And it doesn't mean that they have to be on it lifelong, although generally it's very safe. It just is used as an aid. 
to help get them through. Just something to kind of help you along as you're as you're learning those coping mechanisms. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that we're realizing now in humans and subsequently in pets that mental health disorders, whether it's anxiety and fear, is really very, very prevalent. And genetically, a lot of it has to do with a neurochemical imbalance. And while the training is hugely important from a learning perspective, if there is some degree of a neurochemical imbalance going on, what can help rebalance that is the appropriate medication. It's not an, I feel like we should mention it's not an overnight thing. It takes time. It took a long time to get there. It's going to take some time to have those healthy coping mechanisms. Yes. And I very much appreciate that you brought that up. Usually what I tell my clients, you know, I'm very open about talking about mental health. Like I've been in therapy for a long time and a lot of people have been in therapy for a long time. I think everyone should go to therapy, but anyway. Everybody go to therapy right now. Everybody. Absolutely. I think it will be a life changer. That being said, when you go to a talk therapist's office, you're not going in and you're cured the next day. That is not happening with a human. I've been in therapy for 12 years plus. I don't know. So yeah, no, this is not going to happen overnight. Um, It's not to say that your pet's never going to improve, but they need the opportunity and the time to learn. Absolutely. And speaking of things that that take time, things like house soiling, you know, so they're they're peeing outside the litter box or they're pooping on the floor, you know, after you rule out some kind of medical issue like a bladder infection or something, then they come to you, right? Absolutely. And I, I am glad that you brought up and prefaced it Um, checking out medical stuff first, because in some scenarios, unfortunately, especially cats with litter box issues, sometimes it's just assumed that they have a behavioral issue, but you really need to do a full medical workup with your general practice vet first and get like comprehensive lab work and your analysis to make sure that there's no stones, inflammation or anything like that. But once you rule out all of those medical issues, then yes, in general, house soiling is something that will come to me. And based on history taking an interview with the owner, usually we can figure out what is the motivation behind this? And it's not until we figure out the motivation that we can then streamline what the treatment is. Because let's just say a dog is peeing and pooping in the house because of separation anxiety. Well, we can potty train that dog as much as we want. If we're not addressing the separation anxiety, they're probably still going to keep having that issue. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, with your your kitties, I know a lot of people say, oh, they'll get the cats mad at me. It peed outside the litter box or, you know, things like that. I think one of the biggest things that I have seen in my experience, because one of the top reasons why I'll see cats presents to the behavior clinic is litter box issues. And they end up in the shelter a lot for that too, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. That's the number one reason I think for relinquishment for cats to the shelter Yeah, it's sad. A lot of times it's due to inadequate hygiene. And it's not to say a simple fix because it's something that can happen repeatedly. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when it comes to your litter box, you know, they did a study on this. The number of litter boxes you should have in your home is the number of cats in your home plus one. So a lot of times people don't have the right number of litter boxes. Number two, the size of the litter box is huge. So I don't even buy commercial litter boxes anymore because they're too small. I have the under the bed sweater bins that I use as litter boxes for my cats. And it's I live in a studio apartment in the city and it's still possible to have those around, um, even with space. And then another thing is how frequently. So of course, you know, scoop the litter at least one time a day, but you're supposed to 
completely clean it out at least once a week. And you clean it out, you empty it, and you clean the box with like warm water and just mild dish soap. And so long story short, I've had a lot of litter box issues where the litter box wasn't being cleaned for two weeks or a full month. And I tell them all about these hygiene recommendations. And all of a sudden, I don't want to go to the bathroom in a dirty toilet. So neither do our cats. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Yeah. I, it's funny. We You talked about the size of the litter box. I had gotten one of those commercial, and you're right, they're tiny, but those covered litter boxes. And I thought, oh, this is so nice. But then I got it home and saw it next to my cats. And I'm like, my cats are bigger than this litter box. And one particular, he would, like the cat's body is in the litter box, but his little butt's hanging out. So everything's coming out and it's like, oh, baby, I'm sorry. And no, I mean, you know, I think it's all about public education. Like, what I'm saying now, this is not common knowledge. So people just... Not everybody works at the vet, or, you know, it's... Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of those, because um, I was even interested in buying one. It's, it almost looks like furniture where your cat can like inconspicuously go into like the litter box within like the dresser. But like, that's for the human. That's not for the cat. So... It is, exactly. I want one of those that looks like the giant plant that's in a pot. I think that would be a neat little light corner litter box that doesn't look like a litter box. Just as a nice option. Like I said, you want to add one more litter box? That's great. Yes, absolutely. Do your cats do this? My cats do this. So, you know, we know the litter box per cat plus one, but our cats, we have a litter box in our bathroom and that is the litter box. Like that is the hot spot. Like everybody, that is the box. You know, I have two cats with three litter boxes and you're, it's interesting. Um, one of the litter boxes, which is right outside of my bathroom, that is where both of my cats very frequently go. Infrequently, they'll go to the other two litter boxes. To be honest with you, I think it just comes with like, they release pheromones, um, which are species specific chemicals within their urine and feces that we can't detect. They can. And I just think with more usage, it's like this positive feedback effect where it's a comfortable bathroom, huh? <laughs> Yeah, so that's where they go. That's so sweet. Oh, that makes sense. I always, I didn't know. I thought, does it have something to do with like our smell being there? But I, yeah, that, that makes more sense. <laughs> and I think too, maybe, you know, that's maybe like a quieter, more secluded area in your home. It's not like a high traffic area. Yeah. That's very true. So I have a list of some common questions from people for like behaviorists, just kind of in general questions. So just for our listeners to know, these are going to be just kind of general answers. Of course, everything is going to be case specific, depending on your pet, your situation. But just in general, these are some of the most frequently asked and FAQ, if you will, <laughs> with Dr. Spano. For number one, how do I keep my dog from digging under the fence? So... Digging is a very normal species behavior. So fence aside, you are never going to get your dog to stop digging because that's asking your dog to stop being a dog. It has to be, what is it about the fence? Why is he digging underneath the fence line? And it could be, you know, do your neighbors have other dogs that they're detecting like the scent? Maybe the ground is serving as just a really nice substrate for the dog to dig. So the number one thing that I recommend is just finding an alternative area that you are comfortable for having your dog dig. Um, so that they could spend their time digging over there. And, you know, once you find a pit that you're happy your dog is digging in, then anytime they go and dig there, make sure that you reward them. The other thing that you can do is to prevent them from digging underneath the fence line, 
blocking off the area. So just making a more kind of solid fence going straight into the ground so that they just simply don't have the opportunity to go and dig in that specific area. We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Hey, pet parents. This is your favorite lifestyle guru, Renee Michelle, and I'm excited to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy. Join me and make some cute pet stuff. Talk about life and love and everything in between. Check out the Renee Michelle show on mypetcandy.com and let's have some fun. I know our dogs, one specifically, she always gets out the fence and then comes to the front door. And it's like, why did you do that? What was the purpose of this? <laughs> like, were you just ready to come back inside? So she's on like supervised outside time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super. I mean, that's another huge thing too. And if that's not necessarily possible, you could get one of those really long extendable leashes and tie it to a tree or a sturdy post or something. So the dog at least has ability to roam. Sure. Just enough time to go potty and everything. And ours, she, I think she's climbing. I don't think she's digging, but it's just kind of like, why, why, why did you do that? Do you know how hard I work to build this fence for you? What are you doing? Right. I think a lot of it just has to do with their curiosity of what is beyond the fence. Oh, exactly. Neighbors are doing something. Rabbits. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Question number two. How do I stop my dogs from barking? So it depends on the motivation as to why are they barking. And I don't want to sound like an excuse me, a hard ass. We're never going to get a dog to stop doing anything. So in terms of expectations, it's what can we do to decrease the frequency with which they're barking? And so we need to figure out why are they barking? If they're barking because they are distressed, We don't want to simply just stop it because that's suppressing their fear and anxiety and it's only going to be pent up. Usually what I say to clients in that situation is that's kind of similar to saying, you know, you're in your psychiatrist's office crying and they're just yelling at you to stop. That's not really going to get anywhere. Oh, I never thought of it that way. That's sad. It kind of just depends on why they're doing it. Um, I think maybe one of the common reasons would be territorial barking. Um, You know, they see the mailman, someone coming up to the door. Um, So there's, you know, door exercises that you could ask like your trainers about so that they could develop positive associations with someone coming to the door, you know, with tossing them treats. And so they don't always feel so threatened as to why someone's coming into their territory. Barking for attention seeking purposes. That's a tough one. Um, The number one thing that we usually recommend doing is ignoring. And that's hard because I get it. Yeah, that's not always possible, depending on the situation comprehensively throughout so many different studies that were looking at dog changes and behavior during the pandemic, the number one thing that increased a lot was attention-seeking barking. And so when it comes to ignoring, it really has to be 100% of the time ignoring because what we don't want to see is the slot machine effect where 95% of the time when your dog is barking, you're ignoring it. But then 5% of the time you understandably want to tear your hair out and you yell at them or you scold them or you give them... That even if it's negative attention, you're still giving them attention, which is reinforced. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dogs love attention. Any attention is good attention to a dog. <laughs> and with the slot machine effect, if you're only doing it 5% of the time, then the dog is just like a person going to the slot machine where, oh, I only won money one out of 10 times. Let me keep doing this more and more and more. 
So I usually recommend 100% of the time ignoring. A lot of times that can take at least three weeks. And over that three-week period, it can actually get worse. But that just means that it's working. They're getting desperate, huh? Exactly. And then they finally have an extinction burst and they'll stop. But I don't like to just recommend that to clients because like I said, it could be really hard to ignore hundred percent of the time. So the one thing that I recommend doing is reinforcing with an incompatible behavior. So what that means is identifying what is the context. If we can pick up on that, your dog is barking. Let's just say they start barking every single day at 4 PM, maybe because they want to eat at 3:55 PM, give them a food puzzle or something to work on so that they are too focused on something like the food puzzle to engage with this incompatible behavior, which is barking. So beat them to the punch. Maybe that's what I need to do when I'm hungry is just get a food puzzle (laughs) to keep me busy. (laughs) Look into licky mats, just put some like vanilla ice cream or yogurt (laughs) My (laughs) husband would walk in, see me and just leave. He'd be like, I'm not even gonna ask, bye. (laughs) This is too much. Hey, you're not hurting anybody. Do it, guys. You do you. do you. Okay, so question number three. How can I get my cat to stop scratching my furniture? So that is a very common presentation or a behavioral complaint for cats. Again, we're never going to get cats to stop scratching in general because that is a very normal species behavior for a few reasons. It uh, removes the sheaths on their claws, um, which is just something that they need to do for natural upkeep. Um, and then it also releases scent into their territory. So we need to give them an alternative. So if you notice that your cat is constantly scratching the couch, get a seven foot cat treat. It doesn't have to be seven feet. Um, That's asking a lot, but get a few different uh, cat trees with vertical space so that we can give them the opportunity to scratch on something alternative. And when you catch that they are scratching something appropriate, that's when you reward them with a little treat or praise or whatever you want. If you notice that they keep going for a substrate, like the cloth on the couch, you could get a cat post, but then get fabric and wrap it around so that they still can scratch on something else appropriate. One of my cats, well, all of my cats, like to chew plastic. So uh, when it comes to chewing plastic, the number one thing that I'd recommend doing is ruling out there's no gastrointestinal issues going on. There doesn't have to be, but that's just always something... I know. Like I just want to say this cautiously. I'm sure they're fine, but sometimes with like acid reflux and things like that, maybe they find something on the plastic soothing. Of course, though, if it truly is a behavioral issue, I can imagine as an owner your concern of like, oh my god, I don't want them to ingest this. So we just need to give them something alternative to chew on. There are kitty kongs, so you know, take away the plastic and give them like a kong to chew. I suggested that to my husband one time, and he's like, "We are not buying chew toys for the cats." <laughs> But the cats might like them. But the cats might like them. And now I can say Dr. Spano says that we have to buy flour a chew toy. And he's going to say, okay. (laughs) Oh, I say the behavior is said. The behavior is said we have to. Clay, if you're listening, you you heard it. You heard it. I wish everyone was that compliant. Oh. uh, Okay. So our our last of our FAQ questions. How do I keep my new puppy from biting and chewing? I think specifically they mean like biting and chewing, not only our stuff like that aren't their toys, but like hands and like that play biting that they do. Oh, sure. Okay. So like mouthing behavior. Yeah, yeah, no. So part of that's tough as puppies because just like a human baby, they will teethe. We just don't want them to teethe onto us because we don't want them to develop a habit where 
okay, teeth us, but then they develop adult teeth and that really hurts. So I would give something alternative. You could give them a Kong, you could give them a licky mat, a snuffle mat, any type of puzzle feeder so that they could teeth on that. Um, I also recommend really, really avoiding playing with your limbs and your hands and your feet. I will say before I was a behaviorist, my kitty, I played with my hands a lot with him. And so now he play bites me all the time. And so I realized this is my fault. <laughs> so don't do that. And instead, you know, you could maybe give them um, like the rope toys so that they could chew on that, but you're still playing with it. It's just not, you know, you're doing it with your hands. So, you know, when they are doing it, don't scold them. Don't punish them. We don't agree with punishment because punishment only tells the dog what not to do. It does not tell the dog what to do instead. And so without coping mechanism, that leads to frustration. So ignore the dog when they're doing it and give them something alternative to chew on that is appropriate. Sure. And there's all kinds of commercial things available that, you know, they're, they're good for puppies. They're good for their little teeth and they're not our fingers. <laughs> their teeth. And one thing that I just learned in my training that I didn't know, and hopefully this is reinforcing to pet owners is that when pets lick the act of licking, which is an, another oral behavior outside of chewing, the act of licking releases endorphins, which is really self-soothing. So that's why I keep talking about like frozen Kongs and these licking mats, because that can be really self-soothing and a very much appropriate alternative behavior to chewing on plastic or your hands or something like that. And some pets even, they kind of self-mutilate. They lick their feet consistently or they lick, you know, or, or bite it themselves. And Yeah. And, and again, you know, if it's not like allergic or something like that, that could be like an anxiety compulsive behavior. Sure. Sure. So to our listeners, remember always rule out a, a medical physical issue before. I mean, you know, not that behavior is not important. Oh my gosh. Yes. So important. But Make sure it's not like bladder cancer that is why they're peeing on stuff. Well, and, and the other thing too, especially for cats and dogs with aggression issues, for example, something that is very underdiagnosed is pathophysiological or pain-related aggression, where animals are stoic and they handle a lot more pain than we can. They have much better pain thresholds. And so I have had like, you know, those wiener dogs, like hot dogs, right? that have like long spine, unfortunately they're predisposed to slip discs or intervertebral disc disease. I've had a few of those where all of a sudden at six, seven years old, they show up to my clinic because now the dog is biting and I palpate down their spine and it turns out they have a slip disc. Because they're hurting, yeah. And so I could have done all this behavioral reconcile treatment that I wanted and that's not wrong, but it's not addressing the actual issue. Sure. Oh goodness. You have taught me so much about animal behavior today. I did not know, like, coming into this, I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm so happy you taught me so much today. Oh, I appreciate it. And hopefully, you know, I didn't chat your ear off. No, never. Never, girl. You know, I always say, like, veterinary surgery has been around since, like, the 1800s, but veterinary behavior has only been around since the 1980s. And so it's such an evolving field, which is a very exciting thing because there's always going to be so much more that we can talk about when it comes to animal behavior. Always. And it's interesting. It's so interesting. I think it's interesting. I'm glad that you also find it interesting. Yes. <laughs> and you're helping and you're keeping these babies out of the shelter, hopefully, and keeping them in their homes. And Right. Exactly. And that's a huge 
thing with like an increase in the percentage of adoptions. We want to make sure that they can stay happily in their homes. Yes. And make sure that you and your pet are a good fit for one another. Absolutely. The human animal bond is huge. Oh, it's the best bond. I feel like we have a lot of similarities. We do. We do. Dr. Spano is awesome. Oh, no. You were awesome. Oh, my gosh. So, Dr. Spano, for our listeners, how can they follow you on the social medias? Are you on the socials? What? How can, how can we get more of you? I am on social media. So, I think probably one of the best ways would be to follow me um, on Instagram. I feel like such a millennial <laughs> Um, so my Instagram handle is at van period spano. So my name V-A-N period S-P-A-N-O. And I do post a lot of articles that I'll do, which do address a lot of the common FAQs. Like I've been a contributor to um, the Dojo and Martha Stewart Living and just how to address, you know, common behavioral concerns. And so um, a lot of those are linked on there. So please feel free to follow me on that. And then the vet clinic that I work for, the Behavior Vets of New York City does have a Facebook fan page. And we post a lot about these things too. Yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes as well. And then we also need to mention Pet Candy's Guide to Dog Behavior featuring Dr. Spano. It's available for free on Kindle Unlimited, Apple Books, and MyPetCandy.com, brought to you by Reconcile Chewable Tablets for Dogs. Yay! And it is a, um, a wonderful handbook that, honestly, every single pet owner should read, whether or not your pet has behavioral concerns. Yeah. And it's cute, <laughs> which is important, which is more important. It's cute, you know? We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Hey, this is Shannon Gregoire. If you're like me, it's tough keeping up with everything VetMed, but now I'm going to make your life a lot easier. Check out my show on Vet Candy TV, available on iTunes, YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook Watch. Catch up with all things VetMed with me. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Spano. I really appreciate you and, and all of your insight, and it's awesome, and I learned so much. Well, thank you so much again for having me and and just, you know, reaching out to people to speak about animal behavior and, and get the word out. Awesome. So everybody go look up Dr. Spano. <laughs> thank you so much, Caitlin. And of course, Dr. Lopez. That's going to do it for today. If you enjoyed the show, hit that subscribe button. See y'all next week. And until then, remember, the best pet is the one you have at home. Pet Candy, it's Pet Candy Radio.